Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. Today we use the expression retail therapy to playfully suggest that buying things, especially luxuries, makes us feel better. Yet in the 17th century, luxury consumption was viewed in a very different light. In fact, luxuries were taken seriously as a danger not only to the moral character of the individuals who consumed them, but also to the survival of the state. This certainly holds true for our first text, Thomas Munn's England's Treasure by Foreign Trade, first published in 1664. According to Munn, a good prince or politician would always need to check the importation of foreign luxuries, because doing so turned the balance of trade against a nation, and the consequence of that was to drain a nation of its gold and silver. In making this argument, Munn could hardly be said to be giving neutral advice. He was what we would call today a lobbyist, working for one of the most powerful multinational corporations that the world had ever seen, the East India Company. Munn was employed by the company for much of his adult life, and his services included defending the company from the accusation that it drained England of its bullion, of its stock of gold and silver. His cleverness consisted in arguing that what mattered was not the stock of precious metals that a nation held, but the overall balance of trade, since a positive foreign trade balance would ultimately draw in the metals, hence his title, England's Treasure by Foreign Trade. With the company thus taken off the hook, Munn could place something else on it, England's taste for foreign luxuries, imports that hurt the balance of trade. In saying this, Munn was articulating what would be a constant refrain up to and beyond the time of Adam Smith, who would mock this line of argument with tremendous success. Along with defending his employer, Munn also made the case for his profession. The title of his first chapter reads, The Qualities Which Are Required in a Perfect Merchant of Foreign Trade. To understand this curious title, it must be remembered that in the early 17th century, to engage in trade as the way of making one's living was to expose oneself to a number of accusations that had tremendous force in an avowedly Christian country. Here is Dr. Lee Penman, Research Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, University of Queensland. Being a merchant was a questionable pursuit in early modern Europe and in particular in early modern England. And this was largely on account of the suspicions about the closeness of mercantile interests and mercantile behaviour to things traditionally frowned upon within Christianity, such as usury, such as cheating people, such as donkeys. Keeping this point in mind allows us to make sense of Munn's description of the merchant's office. In the first place, he called trading with foreign nations a vocation, which at this time was a word less used to refer to one's occupation, and more to invoke the station to which one had been called by God. By using this word, Munn was attempting to move the activities of the merchant under the protective coverage of Christian belief. Having squared the ledger with God, Munn then proceeded to identify the merchant's contribution to the earthly community, serving as the steward of the kingdom's stock. This was a task that required great trust and conscience, because the merchant was obliged to always align their private gain with the public good. Given the gravity of this vocation, what were the qualities that the merchant required? Good penmanship, for one, and to be good with figures. The merchant would also require a knowledge of the weights and measures of the countries with which he traded, their laws and customs, commodities, and the state of their exchanges, what we refer to today as exchange rates. The good merchant must also be a skilled navigator and speak as many foreign languages as possible. Finally, the merchant should be a scholar and spend their youth learning Latin. As Mann commented on this list of qualities, I find no other profession which leadeth into more worldly knowledge. 
the moral worth of the merchant was proved by the success of those states where they were most esteemed. Venice, of course, but also Genoa, Florence and the Low Countries, today's Netherlands. In this respect, England had something to learn, since its nobility did not practice trade. The result was that, as Mann wrote, the son being left rich, scorneth the profession of his father, conceiving more honour to be a gentleman, and consume his estate in dark ignorance and excess, than to follow the footsteps of his father as an industrious merchant. This was also to be a long-lasting complaint in England's history. If we turn from the personal to the political, what was the service of the merchant to the state? How did the merchant, as Mann put it, serve the public good? The answer hinged on the idea that the state was just like the household of a private man. If more were sold each year than was bought, then the estate would grow by the difference. Accordingly, it did not matter if bullion were exported, because only the overall balance of trade determined if a nation grew or declined. If the balance were positive, the difference must inevitably be returned in the form of bullion. And bullion was a sinew of war, because it could command the armies and the supplies needed to support them. Foreign trade was crucial to the strength and survival of the state, and it therefore stood as a topic in reason of state, in which the wise prince would always be knowledgeable. In particular, Mann recommended that the prince have the balance of trade calculated each year so that he might know how much bullion could be safely retained for spending. The prince must act as the stomach does in the body and circulate bullion amongst the community by wise spending. In other words, Mann did not rely on co-opting the theological concept of a vocation to make a place for the merchant. He also used arguments from reason of state concerning the state's strength and survival. Lee Penman again. There were, of course, different ways of understanding trade, commerce and mercantile interest during this period. It could be conceived of theologically as a moral pursuit, and in those terms, uh, trade could be seen as something negative. Alternatively, within reason of state, trade and mercantile activity could be seen as a positive thing, with no particular moral valence, but instead with a benefit to the state itself by creating wealth, what, then, can we say of Mann's text in relation to the way that we think about political economy today? Perhaps the most noteworthy feature is the close correspondence between reason of state and the study of trade. Far from being a science of constrained maximisation, Mann's book was practical advice to the prince on how their state could survive in a threatening world of rival states. Trade was not a matter of wealth, as it tends to be for us today, but of wealth and strength together. It should also be noted that Mann was no tenured professor but a polemicist working for a company under attack and working in a vocation that was equally suspect. This no doubt explains why Munn tried so hard to portray the merchant in a favourable light, especially in comparison to the idle gentleman. Today Munn, when he is read at all, is read as a so-called mercantilist, a primitive economist who supposedly confused wealth with money. We have received this image from Adam Smith, who invented the mercantile system as a label for his predecessors. Yet Munn's text is perhaps better seen as a defence of the merchant's place in society before it was accepted that he had one. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Dr Lee Penman. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyebi. <laughs>